So we're rolling. Cool. We are live. This is your Doing It Wrong with Mark Henderson Leary. And my name is Mark. And I, as you know, have a passion that you should feel in control of your life. And so what I do is I help you get control of your business. And part of how I do that is by letting you listen in on a conversation between two people who have a serious passion for excellence in the entrepreneurial world, talking about something that you already know something about. But this time we're digging in deeper and getting into the nuts and bolts so you can understand better and unlock those stuck spots and break through the ceiling and run that better business and live that better life. So before we dig in, of course, don't forget to subscribe and share. Get this into the hands of your friends and the people who could use this material. And of course, please, please, please give us the feedback, good and the bad of things that you're experiencing. What do you want to see more of? What do you want to hear less of? Uh, And just make sure you're giving us that feedback. We're so grateful when you do. Uh, so today we're talking about money. We're talking about finance and all the critical ingredients in the, in the blood and the veins of business. And so my friend Greg Crabtree, who I, I've really has changed my perspective on, uh, on, on money, who is a, a known speaker, author, entrepreneur, financial expert, which, you know, the entrepreneurship is so important. And it's, it's one thing to have financial experience, but, to, but Greg, as an entrepreneur, uh, founded his own firm uh, and then later and recently, somewhat recently sold it. So he's got the entrepreneurial uh, perspective wrote his first book in 2011 called Simple Numbers, Straight Talk, and Big Profits just to give us give entrepreneurs a sense of how to command the numbers. And this last year released his second book, Simple Numbers 2.0, Rules for Smart Scaling. Uh, Greg speaks to entrepreneurs all over the country, all over the world, and leads training and is just as an amazing thought leader of bringing life to, to what can be so... Um, Maybe not, maybe boring is not the right word, but you know, sometimes it's less interesting for entrepreneurs, but we got to have a command of the numbers, and Greg is the master of doing that. And so, welcome, my friend Greg. How are you, sir? Very good. Thanks, Mark, for having me. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to kind of share these ideas with folks and uh, help them you know, reach their goals that, that they're trying to get to and get through those blockers that are keeping them from getting there. Well, one thing I want to kick off just right from the get-go, before we started recording, you mentioned something that was interesting. The companies that you benchmark, and you benchmark a lot, you benchmark a billion dollars in revenue with over a hundred companies. And looking at last year's performance, the companies you benchmarked actually outperformed the year before. Is that is that right? That is correct. So why is that? Well, it's really kind of interesting. So I had a I used a 50-company model, so our practice is not geographic. It is all over the country, no uh, specific industries. We have a uh, There's rarely an industry we haven't done work in or have clients in. And so it's a nice cross-section. It doesn't matter if it's manufacturing services, um, all different kinds of, of, of industries in that sense. And so um, as I looked at it from a study set, you know, that uh, – I used it to develop the, the concepts in the second book that uh, were built around return on invested capital that we'll probably talk about in a bit. But when COVID hit, we decided to up it to 100 companies. We had plenty of data to, to look at it because one of my complaints is, is if you go for industry data or even the government data, here's the one question I'd ask your audience. How much does the government know about your actual performance of your business in 2020? Now, you know, we're, we're sitting here in February of 2021 looking at this, and the government knows zero. Zero. I had not thought of it in those terms. So if you think I, I do about, think ta- tax and performance and profit and PPP, it's like, what do these yeah. concepts have to do with each other? They have very little, right? So where do they get this economic data from? I, I, you know, and, and so the, and, well, 
The problem is, well, think about it like this. The only publicly available data, there's a, there's a few industries that publish some stuff, but public companies produce information. Public companies yeah. produce uh, forecasted earnings, or earnings flash reports, or those kind of things. And, and, and I appreciate the challenge that the government's uh, economic statisticians use or, or try to get data, but, but they're hamstrung. I mean, they, they, they don't have access to this information. And, and so uh, I, I was really challenged to, to go, said, okay, well, I have access to it, so let's study it. I mean, I'm not revealing anybody's trade secrets or anything like that because it's a very aggregated you know, group. But so we upped it to 100 companies. And, and, and here's, here's what we found. So starting with the 50-company model and then evolving into 100 company. This this group of companies that we work with has grown at double digit growth since 2013 was my base year. So 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 were all double digit growth years. 19 was the first year it was below double digit. It only hit 8% that year. All those other years, they were really between 14 and 20% growth. I mean, it, it, and it's like, because it, this was the thing that was bugging me. It's like you'd hear. Uh, GDP grew at two point five percent. Really, I mean, you know, because we we in our consulting practice, I mean, we we touch our clients' data every month. We're not doing year end stuff. We're not just doing tax returns. Our our consulting model is we're we're pulsing with our data every month, putting it in our format, looking at it, analyzing it, looking at trends, and then projecting where is it going. And and it's like there was just this disconnect of here's what you hear and here's what you see. And, and our data is also built around truth in financials because the biggest error that, unfortunately, I, you know, you accountants out here, if you, if there's some of you accountants might be listening to this. We don't do a good job in the world of accounting of presenting truth in financials. We produce it to principles, but principles don't always reveal the truth. And there's things like, you know, my first book, I made a huge big deal about, you know, paying yourself a market-based wage so that you're not overstating profitability. Don't overpay yourself a bigger wage than what you're worth to understate profitability. But there's For also lots of other. Reasons. That's, that's a great oh, yeah. point. Lots of reasons under, to, uh, to measure your actual health of the yeah. business, to measure what it would be like to take yourself out of a job and put yourself into an owner's seat, to figure mm-hmm. out what it would like to sell the business. Uh, yeah, that's really and, important. And here, concept. here's the issue that you have. If you even look at industry data reports that get put out, that data is not filtered for those truthful elements to get flushed yeah. out. Do you have. Do you have related party transactions for for self-owned rental property or, or those kind of things? And so, so the fortune is because we get our clients to work on these principles, we have a higher confidence rate that we believe this data set is speaking truth. And so in that, one of the things that we – so notice that I said it, the economy, you're at double-digit growth from 14 through 18. Well, guess what? That kind of crosses a couple of administrations of different parties. Here's the first thing I would tell you as a data guy. It's not political. It it ain't the politicians, folks. I'm telling you, (laughs) entrepreneurs do things. Entrepreneurs, my my favorite phrase is money chases easy. Entrepreneurs overcome hard. I mean, you know, it's it's like the money guys are, are throwing money at things, but it's the entrepreneurs who create businesses and scale them and figure out what the market needs and find a way to do it profitably and get a good return on investment. That's the secret cycle, you know, that, that, that you're trying to get people through. 
That's and so it's funny because I think it's so many times it's that pre-election angst, uh, and I've heard mm. so many business owners like, "Oh my gosh, if that guy wins, it's over for me." And yeah. I, I don't remember ever any consequences no. th- after that. Like the, it's all fear, no, no consequence. <laughs> exactly. Now, the, now, notice that I said we dropped to single-digit growth in nineteen. Now that's pre-COVID. I mean, that, the COVID is not impacted that. And my contention is, just looking at it objectively from the data, we ran out of labor. Hmm. I mean, there. Tell me what productive what what productive activity happens in business without labor? Nothing. Nothing. And when you have unemployment, I mean, the, the standard rule that I've always heard and, and I do believe in is once you're below five percent unemployment, you you are at full employment. That last five yeah, percent isn't employable right. for the most part. I mean, they may want jobs, but they don't. They don't give you a market return for the pay that you're give that, that they're willing to work for. And so that's a that's not a comfortable conversation for anybody to have. But I, I'm just I'm just data guy. I mean, I just look well, at I, it. And I, I, go, well, I had a brief flirtation with a business degree and we talked a little bit about the that natural state of unemployment and you know there's the gaps and the transitions and the, yeah. and the learning and there's you know it, yeah you're right it, it, at yeah. some point it's just n- natural normal overhead that you yeah. can't get below it's like it's like eliminating so, backlog like you cannot eliminate back if you eliminate backlog in the business you're out of business you know there's yeah. always got to be something but, backed up behind that but what we did see in 2019 were people that had demand that could not execute on it because they couldn't find either the direct labor or even the management labor and the skill sets that they needed to propel it forward. So then we roll into COVID. So we're, we're rolling on at a rolling 12, 8% growth rate. COVID hits and April was down about 20%. May was down about uh, 10%. June popped back because there was some release of activity that came back because of the harsh clothing uh, closings that came back. By February, we were down 3% year over year. I mean, I mean, sorry, by September, we were down 3% year over year. But by, by December, we were back up 6% for the year. Now, even as, as amazing that is, here's the next thing. We were up in profitability. We were 3% higher. This, this whole model yeah. runs at about an 8% EBITDA. Uh, to use the term most people understand. We call it net operating income. But, but they operated at an 8% EBITDA. They were at 11 for this year. They made more money because COVID forced even the good businesses to pause and assess what expenses are necessary, what adds value. Stop doing anything that doesn't add value because you, you had this this attack from the outside. So let's pause on that for a second because that, that, what I'm hearing is fear drove mm-hmm. great behavior. It did. Which, which is not intuitive. Fear usually dr- drives stalling behavior, delay yeah. tactics, indecision. And certainly in a consumer world, that is what happens a lot of times. At least that's portrayed. Right. And as I say yeah. that, maybe that could be challenged. But mm-hmm. it seems like the entrepreneurs who were in control of their business or had some mm-hmm. sense of, of, of dis- discipline, that right. fear did the, the layoff effect, right? <laughs> you know, it it's did. like it did. when you, <laughs> When, yeah. when, you, when but, you fire those people, it, it, you should have fired for a year because you were afraid to run out of money. But it wasn't massive. You know, we, we saw temporarily through the summer, direct labor was probably trimmed by about 10%. Management labor was only trimmed to about 5%. Because it kind of tells you that most people perceive that management labor is harder to replace if this is temporary. My direct labor is probably easier to replace. But if you go back to Jack Welch and his famous statement in his memoirs was, 
GE always believed that back when they were, were were a highly profitable business and well run that the bottom ten percent you should trim every year. Well, guess what the guess what the market did? It trimmed ten percent of direct labor in the middle yeah. of COVID because it said, you know, I you know th- we can get if this person didn't show up for work today, we could still do it without them. And, we, and I'm, I'm thinking, what a weird environment we had. We had this fear mm-hmm. and threat that forces forces that cleaning that we were afraid to do before the threat. And mm-hmm. on the backside of this, we've got PPP and money and intention to 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 create some sense of safety. So you have this weird right. kind of double factor there that's creating. Well, I will tell you this: this is this is the other thing we saw on the data. If PPP and PPP was the most innovative thing I've ever seen a government do, in my opinion. And yeah, it had some unintended consequences, and yeah, it was kind of messy. But here's the thing: before PPP hit, we saw an immediate spike in accounts receivable days and accounts payable days. So what that was telling you is this fear was also causing a a seizing up of the cash flow of the markets. Gridlock of the cash, absolutely. As as soon as PPP hit, everything went back to normal. Matter of fact, there's a couple of trends that I think are worthy of note. During COVID, I saw the market being more accepting of price adjustments upward than ever. Mm, I saw even big companies have a heart and pay faster with better terms than I've ever seen them accept before. Now, these are things that because of the way I look at the the matrix of profitability and cash flow is being connected together – I hope that stays because I will I will make this statement. The US economy dominates the world stage because of speed of margin. But I, as you said in the opening, I I've, I've been fortunate enough to present my material around the world and when I go present my material in third world countries, I can tell you that the thing that we enjoy in the US, we have the lowest capital requirement to launch a business anywhere in the world because money moves faster here. When money moves slower, it's a bigger capital investment and you shrink the opportunity of the average entrepreneur. Because let me tell you one other thing. You look at this 100 companies, a billion of revenue. None of them used outside capital to get that billion of revenue. Wow. Zero. These are not investor-backed companies. These are... People started with $2 bills and rubbed them together and made a third dollar a profit and you kept a fourth dollar a profit. And then eventually, once you once you build your business to get to full capitalization, then the business throws off profitability. Because what we also know is once we get those businesses to full capitalization, which doesn't take long in, in most cases if you got a good idea and a good profit model, that you can only effectively reinvest maybe 30% of your profits. To grow the business. You, you actually will fail and waste money on execution because there's just not enough good ex- executable actions to use more than 30% of your profits to reinvest. And so 40% goes out for taxes, 30% gets retained for growth acceleration, and 30% can be reliably distributed as after-tax you know, dividend cash flow. That, so, uh, that concept, by the way, it seems pretty dramatically different than most people's perspective perspective right. and so those right. early bootstrap entrepreneurs is like every single dollar is it's like everything yeah, it's a hundred percent reinvestment it's I, I can't even pay myself and you're saying you're like you know if, if, if you run a healthy business and you're spending more than 30 percent on, on investing in the business you are hemorrhaging cash for no good reason and 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 the thing that causes that and this is you know i, I mean i in the first book when i came up with our you know our core capital 
target concept of the two months of operating cash. We found that once we got somebody fully capitalized and off of the debt drug of line of credit debt, not, I'm okay with term Not that debt. I ever did that. Not, I have no idea no, what you're talking about. Not, not, yeah, that's right. But, but once people had the two months cash, they had zero on the line of credit. I mean, you could use notes to buy equipment or something over its useful life. I, I don't want to waste my cash flow on those things. You know, but, but once you got to full capitalization, all of a sudden, you had a wheel that was in perfect symmetry that just rolled over, over and over. The people that you know, were using debt as their instrument, their wheel was lopsided. And so they get on a good run, feeling great, boom, and then they hit the flat side of the wheel, and it's because they were using, you know, other people's cash, and then those other people eventually want that cash. So if you're using the IRS's money to, to run your business, and now your accountant tells you it's time to, to write a half a million dollar right. check to pay your taxes, you're going, wait a minute, we're, yeah, I mean, you know, it's not yours, it's theirs. So don't ever use it in the first place is the best answer. When you're using the bank's money, we'll just make sure you give it back to them and then create some of your own so you don't ever need to talk to them is, is really the, the, the best plan. So, you, so you're telling me I should use my receivables line to fund a giant marketing campaign that's unproven, right? <laughs> yeah, that's probably <laughs> Maybe a little not. questionable. Maybe, yeah, not. Maybe yeah. not. That's a, a, Well, you know, there is this thing called Las Vegas where you can go put all your money on red or black and spin it and be, yeah. over, and be done with yeah. it. Either it worked or it didn't, but you're going to know in about five seconds. Well, that's true, but and I and I make I give a hard time about that using the receivables line for marketing. Man, I'm, I did that. Right. I absolutely did that, and and I did it little chunks, little chunks, and like the receivables right. line is is like kind of consumed, right. and like it, that's not what a receivables line is for, by the way. It is. It is, and and that's really where you know, and and so you know, there's a lot of these little concepts in business that's like you know little babies that need to be named, and so you know, so we you know. The, the first thing we name that has really helped our clients is the core capital target. The two, mm-hmm. you know, what, what is the right amount of cash? Well, we've looked at hundreds of businesses, well over a thousand businesses in the last 10 years, you know, probably pushing 2,000 businesses. And then there's thousands of others that use our concepts. And I've never seen it need to be more than two months. I don't even care if you're seasonal. You just need two months because the rest of the time you're trying to be operationally you know, profitable and, and cash flow and support yourself. So naming that baby of that core capital target it has really, it, you know, our, <laughs> we had two types of responses during COVID. We had the clients that called us in April and said, thank you for teaching us about having cash because we're not worried and we're able to keep doing business, and our employees are still employed, and life's good. And then we had the other response, which was, man, you know, I wish I'd listened to you, and thank goodness for PPP, because the PPP is a validation of my two-month rule, because really it's two <laughs> months of labor plus a half a month that yeah. adds for the other stuff. And so the, the amount that they gave people in PPP was almost exactly my two-month core capital target number. And most of those businesses that got this gift of manna from heaven – to, yeah. to put that in there, they they said, okay, I'm not going back to not having cash. So that became, they got gifted their two-month core capital target. And and conversely, that 100-company model, I mean, this is the most cash I've ever seen ever on businesses' balance sheets. This is the one difference coming out of this that I'll tell everybody listening to this. that you know th- This is a thing that once the restrictions are released fully, you you don't have this much cash funding a recovery when it's a true recession. This wasn't a recession. It was a restriction. 
Mm-hmm. It, it, it doesn't mm-hmm. even meet the qualifications of a true recession if they actually were able to count the data correctly. And, and, and like I said, my data set says we're up 6%. That ain't a recession. I, I got news for you. Uh, and, and so, but now there's so much cash sitting here on the sidelines waiting to be released once they know that this isn't, you know, the, the, the pace car lap uh, of the race. You know, we're, we're, we're looking for the checkered flag. And right now, you know, it's still the white flag going, hey, we're, we're still doing another pace lap. And, and, but most of the people we're talking to, they're looking at April as the green flag comes down and, and, and you better go. So this cash, how do we protect that? Cause I immediately, my, mm-hmm. my mind goes to the traditional way of running a business. Even mm-hmm. people surprise how big a company can be where you run a business out of the bank accounts, right? You could probably test to that. <laughs> you can run a big ass business and still be looking at the bank balance yep. and go look at all that money. And so some of that money is government. Some of that money is future payroll. Some of that is that working capital or reserve capital uh, that you, mm-hmm. that you're talking about. How do you, how do you coach a business to get that money out of mind and protect it now and forever? Well, it, it's, you know, it, it's a five-step process. The, the, the first thing you, you need to, to make a decision on because it does affect your tax adjustment of things is what am I willing to risk of that to put back into the business that's an unproven investment? Hmm. So typically, it's a surge in marketing, hiring people before I need them, uh, technology investment. Those are the three things. And, and so this is another baby that we've named. We call this launch capital because okay. most people think of capital as being a balance sheet item. And for the most part, in, in the new book, we talk about there's three types of capital that makes up the complete balance sheet. There's trade capital, which is all the stuff that turns over AR plus inventory minus accounts payable and deferred revenue, that net number. And then you've got infrastructure capital, which is book value fixed assets minus the debt connected with it. And then you've got buffer capital, which is cash minus line of credit. And so those three numbers, that's your balance sheet. I've touched every business asset and liability with those three numbers. But there's a fourth capital, and that's called launch capital. And it's been hiding in plain sight since the dawn of mankind. And it is an expense that I'm spending today that I didn't need to spend for what I produced today. It is a spend that I need to do to produce something in the future. It is a use of my current profitability to make a bet for the future. Well, that's the best definition of capital I've ever heard, but it lies on your P&L. And I was so say, well, it's, like it's capital, but it's not really balance sheet. It's, it, exactly. You, okay. And it's, so it's, renewing, it's, re, it's ongoing. Renew, it's capital that renews every month or every week right. or however time you and, add it back to the And room. so this will drive the traditional accountants nuts because it's like, well, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> yeah. We need to stick it on the balance sheet. No, 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 no. No, what you need to do is have a, dimension, a three-dimensional P&L that says, here's my normative operations of the expenses associated with the current income that we produce that's normal operations. Here's the stuff that's speculative that I'm experimenting with. Here's the expenses associated with that. Here's the beginning of income off of that, but it's not fully formed yet. So we've got a, a multi-location uh, auto service you know, client. So they've got... Five, currently five locations trying to grow to about 20. And and so um, we've got three mature locations. We've got two in the launch phase. And so we report on the mature locations and the costs associated with here's the P&L of the mature. Here's the P&L of those in launch phase. And and so we're not mixing those things because I, can't, I, I don't see 
my my sight lines of labor productivity, margin, profitability, if I mush them all together. I, I forget that there's bacon and there's lettuce and there's tomato and there's mayonnaise, you know, but I need to keep all of those components separate to be able to, to say, you know, is this, are, are these acting normally? Or when I mush them all together, you know, you lose sight of it. What do you sh- what do you show an entrepreneur in their business to keep them focused on the the true liquidity and true health of the business that doesn't yep. allow them to start inventorying all this money and say I'm rich. Yep. So so it gets back to the sequence. So the first thing is, you know, of that cash, what am I willing to to risk? Mm-hmm. And then then the second thing is how much of that cash is not yours for tax purposes? Does it belong to the IRS? Does it belong to your state? Let's set that money aside cuz that's not yours. Don't don't even think about spending it. It's not yours. Don't send it in till the last possible moment. Sometimes we'll take it out of the business and hold it in the hands of the okay. individual company so, or, or person. Or but sometimes it's fine to leave it in the business and just take it out of your calculation. Once I get those two things out, then I got to make sure that I've repaid any line of credit debt because that's not my money either. So it's I'm holding cash that belongs to the bank. Well, let's get the line to zero, and then. Then I need to have two months of operating expenses. If I have still have cash above the two month off X, then I can pay dividends. And I and and really we recommend don't leave excess cash in the business. Most people that are S corps or LLCs, you can freely move money in and out of the business, you know, with no tax consequences. Um, once you're fully capitalized, it, there is a tax consequence if you take distributions in excess of basis, but. If you repay, if you don't have any debt, then you you, you have basis in, in almost every case I can think of, and 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 so so the idea is, you know, once you have that pivot point of what the right amount of cash is, then you you then go to my the, the measure that I look at in simple numbers 2.0 is I look at return on invested capital. So once I have the right amount of cash. I know how much my turnover stuff in trade capital is. I know how much my buffer capital is. And so my goal is, is to produce an investment that produces at a rate minimum 50% return. And the average is closer to 75 to 100, but it's, it's going to vary by industry. And But I, mean, I would say the, our, our businesses on average are producing at 75 to 100% return. Where, where, I mean, tell me what stock you can go invest in in the public stock market and make a 75 to 100% return year over year over year. So I, I was struck and by it, that when you said that, and, and, it made, and it made sense to me. And I, I think that the, and it, tell me if I'm thinking about this right. It seems like those dollars as labeled will produce that huge return in the context of the overall revenue picture of the business. So when you put them all together in one pile, you start to see more reasonable growth. You know, this right. is this is a machine and part of the machine is money making. Right. Part of it is operating and doing things at, at, at lower margins. Mm-hmm. And so that is interesting to think about that. Yeah. Like, So once you get that framework there, then you can take people through the thinking process. Do you ha- If you have excess cash, that's the cash I'm going to tell you get out of the business. Because it's not making you anything. Yeah. It's idle money. But up to the two months number, I contend it's active money. Now, the public markets, if you look at return on invested capital for a public company, they do not count cash in the in the capital calculation. Because uh, as Professor Wessels at Wharton you know, told me, he said, well, public companies have an infinite ability to raise cash by just issuing stock. And I go, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, we don't, uh, I, you know, so, and, and I've now changed his thinking, uh, and, uh, in that he now teaches for private companies. He, he ascribes to my two month cash rule hmm. as a, as a key component of return on invested capital. 
But what this did, and, and I have to give him credit because he was the one that kind of turned me on to the idea of, of he was just covering it in this EO at Wharton class that, that I chair for EO. And in first year of the program, I mean, he, he's, he's covering it. And I'm thinking, you know, I did this calculation in college, but I've never done it for a client. And, and, and it really kind of spurred me to go research it, you know, on my own clients. And that's where the aha moment came. Because in the first book, most people you know, know my, my famous approach of at 5% profit, you're on life support. 10%, you're a good business. 15%, you're a great business. Above 15%, take it while you can get it or the market will compete you back. And that actually is a correct statement for about 70% of the business businesses out there. But it's the 30% I couldn't answer. And I couldn't tell you why it was 5, 10, and 15. I could give you some, some inferences as to why. But now I know why. It's the return on invested capital. Because everybody's profit target for their business is, re, is a required output of the capital invested. I, and and that, that's the answer. And so we now, every business that we evaluate, you know, when I'm looking, you know, we, we can look at a profit number and they might be happy with the dollar amount or the percentage. And I go, well, that's not the telling tale. Let's go over and look at your balance sheet and say, how much capital do you have invested to turn this over? And if you're lazy with collecting receivables, if you over have too much inventory, if you don't get terms from your vendors, if you don't get deferred revenue by billing in advance and collecting in advance when possible, you're going to have late, you're going to be a lazy capital invested company and you're going to lag in terms of profit relative to that capital invested. And what we want to do is squeeze it from both sides. I want to get profitability up. I want to get capital invested down and make it a capital-efficient, profitable uh, engine. And what we find is, is these are much more nimble companies, you know, when they understand all those components. So where does the, where does the financial uh, – I hear this as being very – like we can produce the cash on ratios and we know what healthy is and the optimal mm-hmm. is. But there's an execution component that follows. Yep. So you go back to the business and say, like, look, I'm producing for you this launch capital at the mm-hmm. optimal measure. What do you tell the business for measuring effectiveness or saying like, whoa, you actually have no effectiveness. Stop spending it. <laughs> Well, I, you know, so there you got to look at every business is unique in terms of their attack to their industry. And, and I, I'll give Professor Wessels credit for this statement. He, he said in the class, you know, the first time he said, you know, sometimes you have to change your, your where, not your share. Because mm, okay. what, what I do with our consulting practice, I mean, my, my um, you know, my original practice, we had about 40 people uh, based in Huntsville, Alabama, but our clients were all over the world. And, and so we merged with, with Car Rigs and Ingram, so they're a top 25 accounting firm. We've got offices from North Carolina to New Mexico. Uh, but the, I'm still doing the same thing that we were doing before. I mean, I, uh, you know, we, 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 we didn't sell. We actually just merged. And so we just kind of, you know, so now I'm just a part. I'm the partner in charge of the Huntsville office for them. You know, but, um, but, but really in, in that sense – there's not enough customers for my consulting type of work in the geography of Huntsville, Alabama. It's a, at the time I started the, the consulting practice, it was probably 250,000 MSA. We're pushing 600 now. Huntsville's a, a very uh, high-growth city right now, high-tech, uh, you know, high. We've we got probably one of the highest per capita incomes in the state, um, you know, great city to, to live in. But it's largely a government contract high-tech town and those you know there's a there's a handful of those so they'll be fine but but really i changed my where and and so i you know i i I don't need to be the big dog in a small market i want to be 
you know a, a, a little dog in a big market and and it, it makes it a whole lot easier but some businesses aren't as easy to scale ge- geographically you know whereas mine was i mean we were fortunate to be an early adopter of uh, uh, zoom and and those other tools so we, we were we were using zoom long before COVID hit and and so we've we've learned how to do those things remotely and not be you don't have to be physically present but if you have to hey there's a plane that gets somewhere every day you know, so you yeah. hop on the plane and go there. So you're, you're, you, you kind of look at your travel cost almost as a facilities cost, in essence, that I don't need an office in every place. I just need to be accessible. And, and so as you look at businesses and, and in terms of their, their ability to grow, you look at the launch capital is that catalyst of growth. And you're saying, so what is my best approach? Should I maximize my current geographic market? Should I, uh, you know, do I go vertical? Do I do more things for the customers that I deal with? Do I go horizontal and, and get more operating units or try different industries? Those are all options, and, and there, but there's a way to evaluate all of those and say which ones yields the best opportunity. But I'm telling you, I mean, it, it's like handing out drugs. Once we connected the profit model to the capital model, and it's like, I mean, I, I can't tell you just how many times it's been an enlightening experience to say, People didn't pursue something because they didn't see the potential of it that it could bring. And there's many times that we showed people the potential waste that they were going to run into because it, it wasn't it, it, it was financial disaster that they were staring into because they didn't understand the capital aspect. Yes, you could be profitable at it, but you're going to die trying you know, because you're, you're going to run out of money. So what I love is like, I've been waiting 33 minutes to bring up the the, my, the sports metaphor I've I've carried with me for the last 13 years since we first met, yep. which was the idea of the salary cap. To think about how competitive teams, there's the worst team in the league and the best team in the league, and what do they share? A salary yep. cap. So this idea yep. of playing within constraints, like you have to, you, yeah. your best innovation comes from playing within constraints. And if you say here, and it certainly applies to, to your, your hiring strategy, which is mm-hmm. where I talk about it Absolutely. most of the time. My clients know that, and, I, and you get credit for that. I'm always you know, giving you credit for, for that statement. But in this, the same thing with the launch capital, like you now have your allocation. Now mm-hmm. go see what works and doesn't. You can't and shouldn't spend more than this. And you should spend yep. all of this and you should optimize it for that 50 to 100% return. And to the extent that you're not, you better mm-hmm. go back to the lab. Well, the, the splitting it between normative operations and launch capital operations actually helps people see that even clearer now. Because I can show you that your labor efficiency for direct and management is fine for your normal operations. Here's your new operation that this labor spend hasn't hit its output number yet. And so it's still in development. So then it becomes a time discussion. How quickly is it going to get there? Because for every month that you don't hit it, I'm, I'm investing more capital. Because here's, here's the thing you know, about launch capital in, in a sense of launching a new location or a new activity. There's the initial spend before I, I, when I'm pre-revenue. And then as I start to get revenue, I'm still losing money on that isolated activity. Well, every time I lose money, that's in addition to my, my launch capital spend. And, and so those are, mm. those are investments. And so, but we now have a way, the way we look at that, and I've, I've given you the clue that you know, we, we look at this 50% return as a minimum standard. Once we, we have somebody model out a new activity, we say, what's the upfront investment? What's the total losses until it breaks even? That's the sum of your launch capital. And you take that number and multiply it times 50%, and say that is how much net income must increase to make this activity successful 
and you have to get there between the 12th and the 24th month. So I'll give you a great example. One of our clients is a, uh, or not a client, one of the fellow EO members. I use him as an example. He's not a client, so I, did, I didn't even know his numbers. But he, we were at an event, and, and, I, uh, and I, I said, well, Pete, I'm going to use you as an example. you got 15 locations. You're thinking about opening up your 16th uh, transmission service center. And I said, now, so um, my guess is that you're going to spend about a million dollars for the dirt of the new building and put up a metal building. He says, yeah, now that's exactly you know, what we spend. So good. So that means the bank's going to require you to put $200,000 down. So that's a capital input. And you can finance the other eight hundred, and that eight hundred is essentially going to be an operating cost. Now, us accountants, we, we like to confuse things and make it really complex. At the end of the day, the monthly note payment on the eight hundred thousand is going to roughly be your rent number, you know, that you're going to pay. So, so let's let's just be honest with how the numbers really work. So, the entrepreneur's mind says this is two hundred thousand dollars of input. The rest of it, I'm going to cover as an operating cost. Great. Now, you're going to lose about two hundred thousand dollars between opening cost and Operating losses until the store breaks even. <laughs> Got a smile and says, "Yeah, that's exactly the number we use. This is good. <laughs> I've, 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 I've seen a few of these data sets before." So you got four hundred thousand dollar capital input. Now your go no go decision on the sixteenth location is this: if you can't get to a two hundred thousand dollar net profit between the twelfth and the twenty fourth month, you shouldn't do this. That means you've got to be at 16667 a month, somewhere between that 12th and 24th. And sooner the better, but, but that, that, I'm going to give you the first year, maybe even two years. Once you have a, more than a two-year launch to get to return status, you're making a bigger bet. It's not to say that you would never do it, but I'm going to question your sanity and just say, do you really understand what you're looking at here? And, and say, you know, you, you, it is, you're taking a long time to prove profitability in that process. I mean, that, there and, is a reason that people uh, pay for three to four times EBITDA as a common, uh, that's, that's the time, right? Three to four years is like, mm-hmm. I, I could bet another way with lower risk and get similar that's or better right. returns. Well, he, you know, when I finished that, he, he smiled and says, well, it's kind of interesting. He said, what you just told me in two minutes took me 30 years to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it took you two minutes to say it, but it took you your whole life to learn it too. So, <laughs> yeah. but but that's the conceptual model. And there's a great example in the 2.0 book on using marketing. And one of our one of our clients that allowed us to use his actual data set, we, it wasn't even altered. I mean, it actually is data that he grew a business in five years. He grew from seven hundred thousand dollars of annual revenue to ten million, and did it by increasing his marketing spend each year and holding that marketing spend increase to a return. And and not all five years worked. There was a, a year in the middle where they it didn't work. And they learned from it, reassessed, but then continued to press on. And so, I mean, just think about it. Growing from 700000 to five, 10 million in five years and were profitable and cash flow paused, didn't, didn't use a dime of debt to do it. So I want to, that's a great pivot point. So this level of maturity and sophistication, I think, mm. can easily – the language we're using, the, your specific, specifically what you're talking about, can easily intimidate a lot of otherwise pretty healthy companies who are not at that level of sophistication. So who do you invite to think at, the, at this level? Who, do you th- who is just now beginning to be ready to, to bring this level of sophistication to the business in terms of number of employees, locations, and, and revenue? What? You know, I mean – 
the original book was was largely written for kind of that five million and under because it was kind of a shock to just people's thinking and, and saying, okay, here's really how entrepreneurs think about finance, and the best of the best really are better at it than accountants are, you know. But but the second book, I would say, has no top end and has no bottom end. I mean, if if we were if I was talking to a a, a person's just starting out. I, I still teach a couple of the accelerator uh, cities. I actually okay. have three cities I work with now, and I rotate through. You know, I've, I've probably done accelerator presentations to about thirty different chapters. Over so, accelerators years. are companies under about two hundred, uh, uh, certainly under a million, million, under a million, million in revenue. Yeah. Uh, just kind of launching, getting their first scaling yeah. up, hiring their first few employees, typically, and getting into business but for the first. These time. are the concepts that the sooner you know them, the the fewer mistakes you're going to make, and 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 so. Helping them see that at that stage, but I will tell you that you know pretty much, you know that I mean we we've certainly actually seen a, a move up in terms of size of clients. I mean we've got clients in the you know 200 million revenue range as much as, but we've got we've got a lot that are in that five to 20 million range, um, you know and and so but there again I mean we got a couple of projects coming up with companies that are in the 50 to 70 million range that they've got high level internal financial people but they see this and they go hmm that's interesting and and what's interesting is is generally my material is much more impactful to the business owner because I'm I'm touching that sore muscle that needs to be worked that the traditional financial presentations aren't it's not solving that that pain and and so in those companies we tend to do more presentation and teach their internal people kind of how to apply it. We may still do some ongoing work, but it's that that you know that probably one million to twenty million company that that we do kind of you know we kind of do the financial analysis because it's not something you need somebody sitting there doing every moment of every day. To be quite honest, I mean once you get control of the data. I mean, it, it's about a one-hour process to look at it yeah. and make critical decisions that either confirms what you're doing or challenges you to say, go back to the drawing board, get with your business coach, and 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 say, okay, let's 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 reevaluate our priorities. Because like a lot of the business coaches that that we work with in, in the, all of the communities, um, you know, what what we like is they help put action to things, and then also we help validate. People will come up in a strategic planning session with an action, but they don't know how to quantify that action economically. And yeah. so that's really where we can bring a lot of context to that to help them forecast that piece out and say, do you really know? I mean, it, it, a good example, one of our clients is probably going to double in revenue this year from $30 million to $60 million. And, you know, their biggest concern was, well, we got to go get investors. And I go, Whoa. no, you don't. I, I, I've already proven. I mean, if you keep doing what you're telling me you're doing, you don't run out of cash. So why do you want to give up some of the company to an investor to, to think you need capital to grow? Because you're making all your capital. And and it's like until you show that you can't make your own capital, we, we don't need to we don't need to you know share that pie with anybody. But you have to have some sophistication to know the answer to that, I think. I that's not it's that's not, not a, it's that's not, not a gut yeah, but it's not as complex as my profession likes to make it out to be. Well, maybe maybe sophistication isn't really the right answer, but you you have I think it's maybe simpler than that. You, you need, have to have what the you data. need. You ha- well, what you need is framework. Yeah, you, but yes, so you need you need data. So there, the, we do find a lot of projects 
where people don't have the data that we need. Now, we're pretty good at working with bad data. We, we have probably one of our best skill sets on my team is we, we can make sense out of bad data if we get enough, enough of it. And so if you get enough <laughs> of it across point. time frame, right, you can, you can kind of look at it and you can fix it. And we, we, we've developed some really good techniques to do the one-off presentation. And so the entrepreneur wants to know an answer faster than somebody says, you know, I, 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 people won't wait to say, well, I need to clean up your books and then I'll tell you what the answer is. No, I mean, that's a bad idea. For lots of reasons. Yeah. And, and so what we're able to do is take that data give them a meaningful presentation that, that's, that's very, if not perfectly accurate, it, it's very close to, to what it is, and show them what they can see. And then we have people that will sometimes have to go in and help, help teach them, okay, now from this point forward, here's how we're going to track the data. Here's how we're going to tag it. Because really what I want to see is, you know, if the, in the 2.0 book, uh, there's a uh, a, a good chapter on segment analysis that that we really like because that's really the next level of understanding how to how to properly scale your business. You got to know it by location, by by team, by region, by line of business, by product, by SKU, by person. Uh, you know, we, and and that's a data tagging issue. And then once you have that kind of data, then you're really just, it's a very quick analysis to see, well, here's what it says. What are we going to do about it? So that's, that's a perfect pivot point on this, this trend that I see. We started this conversation talking about truth. You said, you know, we, we got to get access to the truth. Right. And what I, I have a fear when I, when I think about the terminology we're using, and it just sounds like, um, standard financial type of terminology. But here's the difference I see that traditional financial advisory CPA is, using these terms to come up with a sense of truth through the lens of tax or, or liability. And right. the difference, the quantum total transformation difference of what you right. bring to the table is through the lens of entrepreneurship, which is how do I use the money to propel the business forward? What's the truth mm-hmm. of that? And, and the words sound the same. And there is still a, a, you know, a P&L and there's all these financial reports, but the way you view it mm-hmm. in terms of how it becomes action is totally different. Yeah, because really, every business has an engine, it has a chassis, and then I need fuel. And, and so, you know, it, it, and, and I, I can't have an engine that's too big for the chassis. And, and we see that. There, there's a lot of people who, who get really profitable quick, and they can't scale because they haven't invested in management to really make that consistent. But we see it more the other way. If you have a poor-performing engine and too, you have too big of a chassis, and I, I will tell you the one secret to profitability, it's really simple. The effectiveness of your management labor is what really drives success in your business. When your management labor is effective in doing their job, direct labor is going to be effective. It, it, it's a given. And, and, and so it, it's just that a lot of times, I, I was really surprised when we came up you know, in the, in, the, in the original book, I just have a singular labor efficiency ratio, gross, mm. gross margin to all labor. But in, in the later writings, the chapter I wrote in Scaling Up uh, for Vern Harness's book, and then the 2.0 book, and a lot of my, my published stuff or videos and talks I've done since then, you know, I, I've talked about the separation of direct labor efficiency and management labor efficiency. And 
And yeah. really, when, when we came up with that management labor efficiency ratio, I mean, it strikes fear in the hearts of management teams because <laughs> okay. it, it, it is the harsher of the, of the salary caps. So you really have two salary caps that you're trying to manage inside the business. I got a direct labor cap, but I got a management labor cap. And, and that management labor and, the, and what we also know, and I share this, is if you do a mathematical buildup of if, for every dollar that I add in management labor, it's a low of a six to a high of a 10 for almost all business models except for the really low margin like distributor businesses. But all, all operating businesses, it's a, it's a six to a 10. Use eight to 10 as, as a good average. And just think about that. I mean, you're, you're about to bring on you know, a, a, a new member of the management team you're gonna pay $100,000 to. Well, my question is gonna be really simple. Where are you gonna get the $800,000 of revenue that you need to justify that hire? Okay, so that answers the question I was going to ask. So, the, the, your management efficiency ratio is revenue to to, to salary to, dollars. To, it's revenue. Management. Uh, management labor efficiency is, re, is is contribution margin is the numerator. Okay. Management labor is the denominator. But when you when I do the build up and I take for every dollar of management labor, maybe I need four dollars of contribution margin. Okay. So, well, once I get the contribution margin, I, I'll give you another kind of general average. Okay. One pause on, on contribution margin. Contribution margin is your traditional gross margin of it's, services. It's kind of what most people call gross profit. But it's revenue revenue minus cost of goods sold is what we call gross margin. Mm-hmm. Gross margin minus direct labor is contribution margin. And and what if, if you look at kind of a QuickBooks P&L or those kind of things, it, or most businesses are going to refer to that as gross profit. Now, this is where I'll give Vern Harness credit. Vern, when I was writing the, the chapter for Vern's book, um, he and I had this discussion because I'd used the term gross profit in the first book. And Vern had a very good point that I, I really appreciated. He said, you know, profit is this slippery term that confuses people. And he's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, and, and so we agreed that any subset of the financial activity in financials, the best term is margin. So I have a gross margin, mm-hmm. and then I have a contribution margin. And then I have a net op. If you're probably going to be correct about net operating income, you call it net operating margin, then minus other expenses would then be net income or mm, net profit, sense. you know, in, in that sense. And so, so that's really the terminology that we use. So I will tell you that contribution margin, which above it, you've got direct labor and COGS to get the revenue, it it's between 45 and 55% of the vast majority of businesses. Now, don't don't buy into percentages. You can't take a percentage to the grocery store and buy groceries with it. You, you take dollars. But it, it's just kind of the way business models work. And when you see the way a lot of industries kind of think things and why do you get this value somehow, some way, you know, how does it, how does it play out? And so you can see that if, if I'm at a 50% contribution margin, well, I can just back into that number. I got to have two times that number in revenue. So that, that's how you get to an eight at, at the top line. Now, thing is, I mean, Revenue is slip. Uh, revenue is a slippery snake. I mean, and not every dollar revenue is the same value. But if you have relative consistency of, of revenue, you can kind of back into that. But entrepreneurs need these frameworks. When you can give them a framework to do quick thinking to challenge an idea, you get them to not make a, a lot of turnovers in business. To use the sports analogy, yeah, you know that that somebody just dribbled dribbled the ball off their foot, you know, going up the floor because they wasn't paying attention and they they just you know, lost sight of, of what they needed to do. And 
you know, and, and, and that's really where I think it's helped because once we give them a framework, then they can start to think about how to execute. What are the plays we're going to run, you know, to do this? And there's people who like to take big, bold steps and they're willing to, to be, take more risks. There's others that kind of incrementally test their way through it. Take your pick, you know, and then, and, but once you get the framework of how to attack the issue to grow, then you keep score. And then is it working? And yeah. and I will tell you, it, it doesn't work all the time. And that's the reason why <laughs> entrepreneurs deserve the return that they get, because they are taking chances that the vast majority of everybody else who has a job not taking. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and until you put, put payroll on a credit card, you're probably not a true entrepreneur. So how do you score it in terms of – and the two specific pulses mm-hmm. I'm most interested in are the monthly pieces, like mm-hmm. the handful of numbers that people should be looking at on a monthly basis, and especially the hardest ones uh, are the weekly numbers. Like what matters most mm-hmm. to look at on a weekly basis? Well, the highest form of truth is rolling 12. And so, so, it is, so rolling 12, if you have a monthly kind of financial management mindset of business – Rolling 12 is telling you the highest form of truth. Rolling three is the next level of truth. So if, my, if, if I'm a fairly consistent business and my rolling three performance is worse than my rolling 12, it's telling me where I'm headed unless yeah. I do something about it. And so it's, it's imp- but because you, you cannot take data in a static concept. You have to look at it in movement. And so I look at the rolling 12 tells me what has happened in the last 12 months because I, I can I, I, you can take all the excuses out of it holidays seasons you know whatever yeah, yeah. and then rolling three is telling me the the near term prediction of direction of where we're going and what are we going to do about it a month and eh, you know months are highly inaccurate periods of time but when our, our clients who have consistent operations on a weekly basis they can take that and get one step further that's that's just enormously powerful and that's the rolling 52-week version. So that's the rolling 12. And okay. then I got a rolling 13-week, which is my quarterly, my rolling okay. three. And then I got US a rolling by default, four. Early, it pushes to that, you know, have that trailing 13 weeks and all your weekly metrics. So that's, that's mm-hmm. the easiest way for most people to digest it. So if, if you wait to the end of the month to find out what you did for that month, you, I mean, you've wasted time because, you know, that's yeah. what, my, my farm reference of, of choice on this one is, the, you know, the cow's done left the barn. By the time you shut the gate, it ain't going to help. So what are and the activities? Because, like, you know, in, in your world, every mm-hmm. was leading indicators, lagging indicators. You know, the accounting and finance world is just like the mm-hmm. absolute center of all trailing indicators, right? <laughs> so you, you, ha- yep. you have to engineer its people's thinking to say, like, well, there are some things that we can do on a weekly basis that will predict a good end of the month as opposed to tell the story of a very bad past several weeks. I will tell you, though, that it is actually a productivity measure that tells you more because the, the companies that don't sell enough, they know that. It's The thing that drives me up the wall is we have good activity that we can't get out the door, and it could have gotten out the door. Yeah, And I will tell you that 90-plus percent of the businesses fail in maximizing profit, more so of not getting everything done that could have gotten done. And, so and I'm hearing that your your the leading indicators to your financial indicators are operational, typically operational yeah. or selling or whatever. Throughput. Output. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The backlog. I mean, what, what's, what's the blocker? And if well, you're, well, if you're and, a services and, business, your inventory expires every single month. And if you right. didn't have people productive, then you can never get that money back. 
and 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 backlog is important. Don't 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 get me wrong. And and certainly, you know, leads and uh, you know contracts and, and depending on every industry, you know, has as those things. What we're afraid of, and, and so if I was going to go back to college, I'd get a doctorate in behavioral economics. To me, that is the most fascinating field of study. You got guys like Adam Grant, um, uh, Dan Pink, uh, and you know the Malcolm Gladwells of the world. I yeah. mean, those those are those are the fascinating areas of, yeah. of study as as you look at. And the one thing we're scared to death of in business is running out of things to do. And it's like, listen, I'm telling you. Get your people focused on, get everything done, and they and they're obviously have nothing to do and let them go home with, with pay. And I'll challenge you that it ain't going to happen. I mean, that, but you got to get to mm-hmm. that point because when you have people that are totally done and you don't have coverage for them, it creates a vacuum to your, your sales and marketing effort to really focus on, well, let's go get some more work. And a lot of times... You're, the the sales and marketing people are hesitant to go push the market because, well, where's the capacity? You know, we, especially we can't get services. to that today. Especially in services. If there was any kind of bad outcome last month, the project was mm-hmm. behind schedule and the customer was upset, that selling team has the hardest time going out there and selling confidently. That's right. Exactly. And and so so it, I, I would rather see people prove to me that you can actually get everything done that you have uh, now, granted, I mean, you, 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 there, there's, a, there's an art to the marketing and the sales side. And, and kind of we have this discussion a lot in that, you know, there's this common fall, uh, fallacy, you know, that, hey, if I just give the right compensation package to the salespeople, we're going to go get sales. And it's like, it can be the furthest thing from the truth. Yeah, I'm glad you said and, that because that's and, definitely and my experience. I, I'm, I'm more of a fan. So, so we've long given short change to the marketing aspect of the world because we always say sales and marketing even i said it just a moment ago and i called yeah, myself yeah and yeah. it's like no it really we should always say marketing and sales because last time i checked you correct me if i'm wrong marketing must always precede sales now this may be the salesperson that does marketing first to then get the sale but marketing as an activity must precede Absolutely. a sale i agree now if you're really good at marketing then i don't need a salesperson to scope and get under contract, I just need a good customer service representative that's there and has a good heart for the customer to do what they need. And I don't have to sell anything. And, you know, and and, and, to, and I know there are certain things you do have to sell. You do have to have salespeople. But I, I got a long list of personal experiences with clients that gave out a lot of compensation to order takers that oh, was variable. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I see. I, I teach there's a continuum of marketing, which is the storytelling mm-hmm. and getting engaging interest for somebody who had no mm-hmm. awareness beforehand. Selling is converting somebody from from the state of like I think there might be something here to yes, there is, mm-hmm. or actually, or no, there isn't. Helping them decide in or out. Then there's the yeah. delivery process, and I coach a lot of companies that they're putting a lot of delivery in the selling side in terms of like account management and retention, right. because keeping a customer happy is a totally different 
different experience than finding a new customer who wasn't looking for mm-hmm. a solution. And if it's a prospect or salesperson, it's really doing some hard work of, of knocking on doors and converting people who are, are committed to another way. That might deserve a lot of compensation. Mm-hmm. Keeping somebody communicated with and getting their needs met and who is already loves us, that's a different job. And they probably don't mm-hmm. need heavy, heavy commissioning. They probably just need a good solid salary and, you know, and 40 hours a week. You know? Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and it's one of these things that, you know, we think we're being smart by, you know, giving variable compensation. It's like, well, you're just really trying to shift risk, but you're also mm-hmm. giving away margin. And Absolutely, especially yeah. when you when you tie, you know, I mean, one, our, our hard rule, never, ever pay somebody a commission on revenue because that's a slippery snake. Mm-hmm. But if you can do it on gross margin, preferably contribution margin, okay, but... Where's the leverage? You never get leverage in that equation, you know, if you give somebody, you know, a consistent cut of something. And and so, I mean, we're, we're fans of ultimately don't lose sight of the fact in compensation planning of ever how I pay a person, whether it's hourly, salaried, base plus bonus or whatever. At the end of the day, you got to look at the total comp paid and look back at what that person did and say, did you get a fair return for what they got paid? And where they paid a number that the market agrees with so that it's, it's fair and equitable. And, and ever how the technique is, and we get caught up in this technique of compensation way too often rather than saying, let's use the NFL example. Yeah. What you did this year is what you get paid next year. And it's a one-year contract. And, you know, and it's like, you know, there may be some guaranteed money, you know, but, but outside of that, I mean, you know, it – it really is this thing that, you know, I I just really caution people about tying things to something that moves because if I'm a $10 million business and I tie my salespeople's commission to gross margin, when I'm a $20 million business, I'll guarantee you, you're not at the same gross margin number. So why would, you know, and, and you know, and you're going to have to keep going back and renegotiating the comp plan and we all know that how those things work. I mean, salespeople are really good at negotiating their comp plans, and and <laughs> and um, yeah, and and you know, and and you you create dissent, this and you know, turnover and and all those things. And you know, I, I'm a huge fan. Dan Pink uh, wrote this article for HBR that I refer to a lot. And uh, if you if you go out to the Harvard Business Review site, he, he wrote an article and made a case for why you should pay salespeople a salary. I was going to ask that. I'm glad I didn't know you were on the same page with that because I'm a, I'm a fan of, of Dan Pink's work mm-hmm. and he's easy to find on YouTube talking mm-hmm. about the and I and I believe that the legacy of commission based uh, selling mm-hmm. is just kind of coincidentally like we've done it so long we know how to kind of make it work but it, it but it's it has a ton of unintended consequences yeah. and it's yeah. really difficult yeah. to make work it, and it goes a long way to explaining why young organizations have a very difficult time launching a sales organization mm-hmm. until they have all the back end stuff figured out because it yeah. really incents crazy behavior in an organization that's not really really ready well it generally and a a developing and underdeveloped company or developing company has a tendency to rely on people rather than process and so if you develop a good process the people become interchangeable so you know if, if you've got you know I, I go back to my, you know, I'm an Alabama fan. I went to school in Alabama, so I'm a legitimate Alabama fan. I was there during the Bear Bryant years. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, but Nick Saban 
accepted a long time ago that everybody's going to poach his, his, his coaches. And so he decided that he there's the Alabama playbook for the Alabama offense that has evolved over the years. Everybody who comes in will put some things in it, but the playbook stays. So when Steve Sarkeesian left for Texas, you know, Bill O'Brien just came in. He's running the same playbook we were running last year. Now he he's going to have some opportunity to make his case to to add some things to it, but it's largely going to be this. You know, the, the the guys aren't learning a new ter- terminology. They're going to, you know, it, it it it's it's the Alabama playbook. It's the Alabama way. Well, I heard Nick Saban talk about that on the the documentary with him and Bill Belichick. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that one? Oh yeah. yeah. And he he says like, look, there's like 150 people in this in this building that know this system. You got some great ideas. We're using my system. <laughs> that's right. That's the, and, good for you. We're and, using and, my system. And I, and I think that's really kind of the way, if you look at it that way. So let me give you this great overarching concept. So was, the guy that got me into the entrepreneur's organization, uh, I'll give, give him credit, Ron Hollis, uh, great entrepreneur in his own right. You know, And as much as Ron was a, a client and a friend, we, we had just tons of discussions about business. We were both just business strategy geeks of going, what is this? Why is this? Why is this? And, and, and so I, I owe a lot of my thinking to Ron as well, you know, but, but he taught me this concept that they had a company that, uh, they were the first company to do an instant quote for a custom manufactured part, you know, so, you know, this, this mouse, you know, that started off in somebody's CAD program as a theoretical idea of what it was, um, you know, it, it got sent to a, a, the output to a, what's called an STL file and uploaded. And they would give you an instant quote, you know, for that part made in uh, laser-cured uh, uh, resin sterile lithography to be delivered tomorrow. And so the first of its industry to where literally I could get a version of that in my hand tomorrow. I'd actually have a version of that. You can actually wow. get one. If you ordered it in the morning, you could actually get one delivered in the afternoon. Uh, in, in, if, uh, if, if FedEx delivers. And, and so, so that really kind of a cool thing because it did a couple of things. It established a market price, and it was a process of, even though there was 1,000 data points or more in that STL file, there were 14 that mattered for pricing. Oh, okay. And they created okay. a pricing algorithm. Now, their company didn't own any equipment, none. They had a supplier that tested the pricing algorithm and said, whatever you quote, We'll make it for sixty percent of whatever you quote it for, and then wow. they, they, and their supplier became a client of mine as well. So actually, I, I mean, I, I had good information from beginning to oh, end sorry, of that value chain. Yeah, that's incredible. But but essentially, and and I owe this to Ron, and I've used this you know with a ton of clients, is it it developed this idea that the you know, the value chain, a rough idea, is the value of the product or service is about sixty percent of the price. And 40% of the price is the value of marketing, sales, and project oversight. And so when you take marketing, sales, and project oversight and say that's worth 40%, it's roughly 20% is probably the worth of the lead. I I think the marketing piece is worth 20% of that value chain. The sales piece, the scoping, closing, contracting is worth 10, and the oversight's worth 10%. And so we've used this with a lot of clients who use shared services. They they don't do the complete thing from mm-hmm. beginning to end. What piece do, do you do? The marketing piece? Do you do the scoping and closing piece? Do you do the oversight piece? If I don't do the oversight, well, I'm probably going to do a 70-30 relationship. If I just uh, do a get the marketing lead and throw it over to somebody to close it and, and deal with it from there, it's probably an 80-20 deal. And you can plus or minus those five percent, you know, but you're not going to move them dramatically, right, right, you know, right. in, in that process. 
And, and what we see in this gig-based economy is a lot of businesses that are built around those principles that they need a framework of thinking. Yeah, what sure. are the, you know, those four things that happen, the marketing, sales, oversight, and doing and or or the thing itself and 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 so you you've got to keep all of those things contained and say who's responsible for it because they have if they're responsible for it they have cost associated with it for sure and, I mean, and you must connect the value to the cost and how many how many businesses have, have asked the question of like oh, i could buy that from somebody and resell it but if i make it myself i keep the margins like well you really don't <laughs> no, <laughs> unless yeah, unless like, you really have a better way of making that mousetrap you're, you're better yeah. off outsourcing it to somebody who's actually got that figured out well and and i think it's really what you see is the reason why the private economy i think is far more dominant to us gdp than the public companies and i don't know that we have a really great way to measure that but my sense is is I mean, there's, there's, we've had this shrinking of public companies over the last 10 years uh, because it, we haven't needed to go public to get liquidity because of this private equity layer that sits between the private companies and the public markets. Mm-hmm, I think sure. we're starting to see a shift of these SPACs, the special purpose acquisition vehicles that yeah. raise money with no business. That I'd never heard of that until recently, and now, and now the SPAC is everywhere. It, it, it's a validation of a prediction I made about three years ago because this idea of lack of public companies, I said they need. we have too much money flowing into the stock market, and there's not enough companies to buy. And, and so – you know, yet the market may go down, but notice it always goes right back up. Well, it's because last week's payroll withholdings for 401ks came in, and it's got to buy something. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and it's, it's, it's called a stock, and they're not buying private companies with those because mm-hmm. they can't. And, and, and so I, I, do, I predicted that there would be a new type of vehicle that would own private companies that would be a public uh, type stock, and so I think it was. I think it was Vanguard, uh, if I'm not mistaken. It actually created a mutual fund of private equity-owned private businesses that that people could invest in. So that was the first step. But I think these SPACs is likely that vehicle that we're going to start to see because they're they're really just a public hedge fund. Is all it is. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. in that. I'm glad we had this conversation because you you crystallized. I've been trying to figure it out for a while, and so now I'm like, oh, now it makes perfect sense, yep. and now I can see how they how they flow out. Well, when you have a 30 price to earnings ratio, the market's a little crazy, you know. But because and 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 it's going to stay that way because it's a supply and demand problem. There's not enough stocks for the money that keep, continues to flow in week after week after week. Yeah, and that, well, that creates all kinds of crazy unintended consequences. And last last time I checked, I mean, I think that supply and demand thing still kind of matters. <laughs> it does. Uh, well, it's kind of the it's what we talked about early on in the in the tight labor market. When your supply and demand creates a problem, if you have any yeah. uh, no unemployment, if you get to zero uh, unemployment, you've got infinite salary for, uh, at that point because mm-hmm. why well, you could you could have a job at any price you want at, at that stage. So that's mm-hmm. part of the factor. Well, man, we've covered a ton, uh, a ton, a ton, and I'm, I'm I'm really grateful for our conversation. What? Uh, and I got two questions that, that, that yeah. wrap this up, and sometimes they sure. sometimes it goes five seconds, sometimes it goes another hour. But uh, the the first question is, what else do you want to make sure we share? And then the second question is going to be, what is your passionate plea for entrepreneurs right now? So go back to the first one. What what else? Given what we covered, is there anything you want to make sure you know our listeners hear? I mean. I mean, in terms of, of, of concept, no. I mean, I've kind of laid out the idea of, of kind of that sequence of understanding. Um, you know, I start the, the the new book starts with three simple principles that I kind of touched on. First and foremost is figure out what the market needs. I mean, I, I love the businesses that we call the necessaries. 
And uh, so we have a lot of those, and we have a few that are luxuries or, or discretionary, you know, kind of businesses. But, but uh, you know, the necessary businesses, you know, that, that do services, do you know, make things. But most of it is, you know, we're definitely a highly dominant service-based economy. But um, but there, there's there, there's a lot there. But but who cares? I mean, really, you know, figure out what the market needs, uh, and and sometimes it's it's not. The thing itself, it's how you interface with a customer is what the market is really aching for in that process. Secondly is find a way to do it profitably. We feel like that's where, I mean, we're, we're pretty good at that, of, of giving people, helping people get clarity around the profit model of, of one or more activities that a business may do. But then the final piece is understanding that return on invested capital. Every business model has a different capital signature. And your profit target is relative to your capital signature, not your industry, not anything else. It, 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 it's, an, it's absolute physics at, at the end of the day. And, and once you understand that sequence, then you, know, you, you can really start to apply then the launch capital pr- principles of how to scale and grow the business. And, and not to say that we're against getting outside capital. There are certain businesses that need it. Uh, but, but you're making a clear decision of going, when, when do I need it? And and what am I going to do with it? You know, once I get it, um, you know. But but there's a vast majority. My of advice to, that, to companies around capital has, has been this, and tell me if you agree, and feel free to challenge mm-hmm. if you don't. I say that outside capital is important when one or both of these factors are in place. One is you're talking about adding a zero to your scalability, like you were talking about exponential growth. And, and the and the slice of the pie is going to be so much bigger that it would make sense to 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 bring in outside leverage. Combined maybe with or separate from the idea that time is is a major, major factor to your ability to execute in the market. Do, do those make sense to you at all? The, the time factor, it, it, well, I would look at them different ways in, in saying your, your need to invest to, to front run the activity mm-hmm. is larger than what the cash flow can yeah. be produced from the activity. Now, but we've seen phenomenal shift of people who thought they couldn't generate their own cash to grow to they realize they could. Yeah, and um, that's a. I mean, speed of growth is is not dependent on capital; it's dependent on execution. And yeah, yeah, I like that thinking. So you have to run the model. You have to determine uh, whether mm-hmm. or not you can outrun your capital or not. And if you can out, if you can out execute your capital, then that opens the door to like, what would we, what would it look like if we brought in more money? I, I don't have a single client at the moment who's struggling to grow because of lack of capital. It, it's it's not a problem. They're struggling to grow because of execution of their idea of what leads to growth, but. Money, yeah, because it's is it's easy. a truism that everybody feels undercapitalized, and you're saying that if we get the if we get our hands on this, you're probably not. If you really, no. you're, okay, no. that's 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 pretty contrarian thinking. That's it's a big thing. Like yeah. If you get a real entrepreneurial handle on your finances, you might not be undercapitalized, and you might have to change your thinking, taking away some excuses, which I love. Mm-hmm. I love to take right. away excuses from entrepreneurs. Like you know, you have everything you need to win right now, so mm-hmm. let's go do it. So, Absolutely. what is your passionate plea to entrepreneurs right now? One, I, I, I would say is, um, you know, understand, know the to, to steal from Cameron Harold, you know, know that painted picture of what health and full capitalization looks like for the business. Because I will tell you from my data, 
if I can get you to full capitalization first, then you make your run. And otherwise, you, you know, you're, you're you, um, you know, you're going to a gunfight, you know, with a stick, and and you're not going to win. And 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 so, you know, you really need to understand to get that piece right, and and then you're able to then deploy all of these advanced thinking, you know, approaches of going, you know, what, where do you want to take the business? And in the book, I'm really proud of the segment that I put. We we kind of created this framework around building value. Of there's three business value plays. You're either a run to harvest business. Nobody's going to ever come pay you a premium for it. So make sure you build your wealth from the profit distribution and don't consume all that. Yeah. You're a harvest until premium sale. So you're you're creating some building of wealth externally, but realistically, you're waiting for that premium buyer. And we've created a technique for you to evaluate what's a good number and when to say no. We call that the replacement return decision. And then, then you got the build a sell model, which is the the rocket ship to Mars. That okay, you know, and and you know, you don't see as many of those as you saw back during the dot com era and those things. You know, most people are are launching businesses that, you know, really are serving a need of the market, and um, you know, they're they're not quite as speculative. They're just either rolling up existing businesses or you know, attacking an underserved segment. Um, but once you understand the, those value creation deals, then you've got some strategy to always check yourself with. Uh, but, but you know, I, I just love the entrepreneurial process of, you know, we're the ones that, that truly employ you know, the people in the world. We span whatever political party thinks they're in power because they think they do stuff, and I got news for you. Anything, it's us. You know, we're, we're, we're the ones that make it happen, and... Yeah, for sure. You know, and you know, and yeah, it, it you know, if they change policy here or there, there's going to be some isolated areas. But the broader aspect of the market, generally, pricing and execution tends to adapt to it. You know, whatever it turns out to be. So I love what you said there in terms of like bringing Cameron Harold into that. You know, understand mm-hmm. your vision. Where are you going? Because you'll be able to manifest. Mm-hmm. You'll be you'll start to be able to we. Uh, filter out other people's strategies, you know, I need to raise money. Well, my three-year picture, which is EOS is equivalent, you know, mm-hmm. the, 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 the vivid vision is what he calls mm-hmm. it. Now I used to call it a painted picture. Cameron mm-hmm. Harold's did, of course, mm-hmm. um, the idea of what does it look like in three years? Yep. Uh, this is Michael Gerber talking about when you build your structure of your organization, what does it look like at optimum and, and have your sense of where you're trying to go? What, what can you and do you want to produce and then mm-hmm. run the math, run the model, like what's it going to take to get there. And then you can build this model that says financially what are my salary caps what do they look like which put up these guardrails around this idea of is it working is it not and now you can measure it and you can say if i'm not getting 50 to 100 percent return on investment on my on my um, my investments of the future then i gotta change something because i think a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck on knowing not knowing when to make changes particularly people changes which you you talked about that uh, management uh what if what's the management metric? management labor efficiency yeah. management labor efficiency that's a that's a tight lens on are your leaders and managers doing their job really well mm-hmm. and and i know from experience and my clients know from experience that if you get stuck there you can get really stuck there you, well, you've got to get I'll, the right I'll people you, in those seats i'll give you one piece of salary cap trivia that's kind of a fun fact so i mean so we believe that businesses truly work the same way the nfl teams work that there is a hard salary cap and if you don't deploy those salaries correctly, you don't win the game. And so uh, I got I got a little worried this year that uh, I, I 
you know, I, I've not found any evidence otherwise. So my belief <laughs> is is no NFL team has ever won the Super Bowl after with a player that is the currently the highest contract in the NFL. So last year, about this time after the Super Bowl, Patrick Mahomes signed the highest paid quarterback in the NFL. Usually quarterbacks are always going to be the highest paid. And so he was the highest paid player. Now he got close and I was yeah. sweating it. But as soon as he signed that contract, <laughs> I told my team, I said, they you know, go to, go to Vegas and put money down that the chiefs won't win the Super Bowl. Now you take up on that. Uh, we, we all place mental virtual bets. <laughs> um, and, 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 and to their credit, I mean, you know, I mean, they, they, they perform great, but when they got to the Super Bowl, if you really look at it and, the Buccaneers had a much more effectively balanced team. And when you and, and this is a great comparison of businesses. When you overspend in an area to the resources of the business, you'll have a good outcome, but you won't win the Super Bowl. Now, if you're okay with making it to the playoffs and that's your goal in business, then hey, you did fine. You know, but if you want to win the Super Bowl, you know, Tom Brady has won six and Tom Brady's never been the highest paid quarterback. Never. He's always left money uh-huh. to make sure that that left tackle and the center and, and the offensive line and the receivers, there was enough money for everybody to put a good team around him. It's a, that's a, a great analogy because looking about how they performed, I mean, Tom Brady performed very, very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in his offense in general performed very very well. And people who you didn't yep. expect to perform, Gronkowski was doing was doing great stuff. Mm-hmm. And their defense. Otherwise unremarkable was unstoppable, unstoppable. Mm-hmm. So they had they had all the things they needed to have, right. and the, right. the business is is no different, right? You you you've got to have the three legs of the stool. You got to sell, you got to deliver, mm-hmm. and you got to manage the money. And my experience has been that if you know they talk about the three legs of the stool, one mm-hmm. being longer than the other, and I was so surprised that like one of those legs can only be just a tiny bit shorter than the other two. And that stool falls right over. It does. It does. <laughs> you and cannot just be great selling and expect that to sell, solve the problem. That's not there, what happens. You know, it's not like, you know, the other, I mean, major league baseball, you know, has this, this, you know, penalty thing that they do. So it's not a hard cap league in NBA is not a hard cap league as well, you know, but hockey and, and, and NFL are, are hard caps. And and you see a cleaner picture of business in those those organizations, um, and 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 you're going to have those times where you know you you're going to go through a rebuilding year like the Patriots you know went through this year, and uh, you know just look and see what they do next year. I think they'll they'll be they'll be okay, but but there again, businesses go through these same phases. You get mm-hmm. people that grow up and up and up, and they want more and more money. But there is a finite output of what that money can produce. And I, I, I put a complete chapter on labor efficiency ratio in the new book that goes through kind of one of our most requested illustrations, as we call it, the career labor efficiency curve. There's a point that a person keeps wanting more and more money, but there is no more output that they can give you, which mm-hmm. means that difference between their output and what you're paying them, that's profit. And, and when you can't make any profit off of it, why are you doing this? Yeah. 
makes yeah. no sense. That's actually an interesting topic, maybe for a whole other podcast and talk mm-hmm. talk about what the up or out model, particularly in, in pro services, what the importance mm-hmm. of turnover and, yep. and for both career development and efficiency of the business, it, which is very counterintuitive for people who really want it to create is. a loyal culture. Uh, but that's not always the best interest of the culture or the individuals. So Absolutely. Uh, good stuff. Well, man, I'm so grateful for yep. everything yeah, you've shared. I'm, I'm so eager for people to check out the books. We'll have links to that, but uh, you know, the, and they're, I'm sure they're doing well. Looking forward to the audio versions coming out very soon. That that will yep. be great for me to, to share with friends and all that. Um, but that's uh, that's our time for today. If somebody wants to continue the conversation with you, how do they find you? Uh, a couple of best ways. Um, you know, so certainly, uh, simplenumbers.me is the the site that we have for the book and the, the our, our consulting material. Um, our firm website is cricpa.com, uh, but. Uh, but probably the the, the other you know, there's a contact link on the simplenumbers.me you know that gets to the consulting team. So CRI is a big firm and we, we do all kinds of things you know as a firm now. But uh, to get directly to me, you know certainly reach out uh, greg.crabtree at cricpa.com and uh, uh, you know shoot me an email and you know happy to um, you know to, to get any uh, you know questions or feedback or if somebody's interested in the things that we do mike maxson is one of my partners who uh, always does the the, the talks with with new, new potential clients to kind of go through you know because it, it is kind of a unique thing it's not it's not just random consulting we have a consulting process that we take people through that we know works and and we've we got a lot of uh, a lot of successful outcomes to to give us that confidence for sure, for sure, and it's different. I mean, it's it's definitely through the lens of business outcomes and not just avoidance of tax and risk and that kind of thing. That's right. and so I, I'm so grateful for what I've learned working with you in the in the process and the books yeah, and all appreciate that. It. Thank you. So that's it for today. So, for today, for so those of you listening, please subscribe, share with your friends. If you've got a friend who is in need of some advice and new thinking on how to look at their finances from uh, the perspective of an entrepreneur, then please get this in their hands so they can take advantage of it. Uh, and of course, leave us some feedback. Shoot us the, uh, the, those ratings and any feedback, good and bad. We can't get enough of it. And we're so grateful for those of you who shared so far. But until next time, we will see you then on You're Doing It Wrong with me, Mark Henderson Leary. This is You're Doing It Wrong with Mark Henderson Leary. For more episodes and to subscribe, go to leary.cc.